So, we have been journeying with one another through the book of Exodus, the story of the children of Israel and their travail in the wilderness, their mighty deliverance from Egypt. They were going through the Red Sea, the institution of the Passover, and now we find ourselves in a very different sort of story. So last week we dealt specifically with the story of the crossing of the Red Sea and how it signified salvation through baptism. As the children of Israel passed through the waters and were delivered from their enemies, Pharaoh and the army of Egypt, when we pass through the water, we are delivered from our enemies of sin and death. The story points us toward the sacrament of holy baptism, and in today's story, we're going to deal with another story that, that points, towards, points us towards uh, another sacrament, and it's appropriate that we mention baptism this morning as we will be, be having one. As this text begins, the people complain, and they begin to talk trash about Moses and Aaron. They left Egypt about two weeks before, and now they are hungry. And remember, when they left Egypt, they were given provisions and supplies by the Egyptians who just wanted them to go, get out of here. And it's more than possible they may have burned through all of the supplies at this point. So things appear to be a bit more difficult than before. And they had faced a seemingly insurmountable problem and were miraculously delivered at the Red Sea. But journeying through the harsh and arid landscape of the wilderness is taking a toll on them. And in the previous chapter, they come to the bitter waters, and they are thirsty, and they cannot drink of the bitter waters. And what do they do? They grumble against Moses and Aaron, and the Lord provides fresh water for them. And now they come up against something else. They grumble so hard, they said, it would have been better if God killed us in Egypt, because at least there we could eat meat and bread. Moses, you and Aaron have brought us out here to kill us. Now think about how ludicrous this sounds, given what just happened at the Red Sea and at the cleansing of the bitter waters in the previous chapter. You brought us out here to kill us. It would have been better if we stayed in Egypt, at least as we were working ourselves, being worked to death, we could at least eat meat. But if Moses and Aaron had brought them out there to die, then why wouldn't they have all been killed in the sea or in the plagues of Egypt? What's the point of all of these miracles of deliverance? But what they don't realize is that in their grumbling, they are not grumbling just against Moses and Aaron. They're grumbling against God. God tells Moses and Aaron, I'm going to rain down bread and meat on them so the people will know it wasn't your hand that led them, but my hand. And God takes their complaining against Moses and Aaron as complaining against himself. Which is never really a good thing, as we see throughout the Exodus story. Grumbling and complaining against God and God's goodness and God's acts of salvation and mighty acts of deliverance are never a good thing. And God is going to test them, he says, with the bread from heaven to see if they will obey his law. And surprise, surprise, they don't. So what is this test? All right, so the reading here stops at verse 15, but the test with the man, all right, the... the the white flaky stuff on the ground, which was manna, the bread from heaven. It comes a bit later in the chapter, like what the test is. God tells them, just take enough for the day. Don't try to store it. Don't try to keep it overnight. Take only what you need for the day. Except for the day of rest. That day, you should take enough for day that you're in now, and enough for the day of rest, the Sabbath, right? So when the Sabbath comes, you don't have to go out and do it. 
Now, the Sabbath hasn't quite been instituted yet, right? But God is pointing them towards that. And that will be instituted and given to them as a gift. And it will be revealed to them on the mountain. And do they listen? Nope. They gather it up to store it, and the next day it's rotted and not fit for human consumption. So they fail the test. They fail to obey the commandments of God. And when the story of the quail is retold in the book of Numbers, they gorge on so much of it that sickness breaks out in the camp and many die. Test failed. Now a lot has been written on manna to try and figure out what it was. One theory suggests it's the secretions from an insect that desert-dwelling people feed on that's sweet like honey and dries up in the sunlight. But this doesn't account, brothers and sisters, for the the daily appearance of the manna for over 40 years. And in different locations. And also, what about the quantities needed to sustain everyone? God freely gives them bread from heaven, heaven every day to sustain them in their journey through the wilderness. Let's talk about, a little bit about ingratitude in the wilderness. The one thing we can see right away in this text is how hardship created ingratitude among the people of Israel. God has performed mighty acts for them, freeing them from the land of oppression and slavery. And he has performed mighty acts on their behalf over and over again. And after brief times of wandering, they begin to reminisce about how good they had it back in Egypt. Hearing them say that reminds me of the aftermath of being in a bad relationship. Has anybody ever been in a bad relationship? If you're in one now, do not raise your hands. Have you ever been in a bad relationship? And things go horribly, horribly wrong. And then it could be like a year later, you break up and you begin to pine for the other person. And then you start to remember all the good things, how good you had it here and there, like a little bit of joy you may have had every once in a while. What do you wind up doing? You wind up forgetting or overlooking all of the bad. And if the relationship ended, then all of that bad must have outweighed those little glimmers of goodness. But sometimes many people, they think fondly about those little bits of of, of, goodness. love and uh, enjoy the main experience and they forget about all of the bad. I mean, if you push this analogy, it breaks down, right? Because they all, all analogies will break down if you push it too far. But that's kind of how I see the children of Israel and their relationship with God in the book of Exodus when it comes to their grumbling. Yahweh and his servant, Moses and Aaron, where they're leading them, even though it's difficult, is far better than their Egyptian masters. They are being led to freedom, but they want the goods they had available to them while they were oppressed and enslaved. And brothers and sisters, we find ourselves just like them, grumbling and complaining against God when on our journey through the wilderness of this world, we hit difficulties, when we hit hardships. Sometimes the cost of following Jesus seems high. God loves us as we are, but he doesn't expect us to stay who we are. If that were the case, then there's no need for salvation. Right? Salvation is not just an ethic that we follow to make us nicer people, to make us more civil. 
We don't just follow in the way of Jesus. We do follow in the way of Jesus, but we don't limit it to just that. Salvation, life in Christ, is the transformation of our fallen human nature by the grace of God. Our freedom from being enslaved to sin and our freedom from being bound to death. Resurrection is our goal and the resurrection is not just a metaphor for having a good life now. The resurrection is what we are all as Christians working towards, striving towards as we follow Jesus Christ. That our own fallen human nature, as we are transformed by the grace of Christ in the here and now, as we follow in his way, as we are made new, that is working itself out in us and will result in when our Lord returns as we confess, as, as we will confess in the creed that he will return to judge the living and the dead. The resurrection is our goal. That's what salvation is pointing us towards. And, and sometimes when confronted by the harsh realities of living in a fallen world, we begin to think back about life before Christ. The sins we used to commit don't seem to be so bad. It wouldn't hurt to just dabble again. I didn't really drink that much. I wasn't really that angry of a person. I didn't really lose my temper and threaten people that much. It was just once in a while. Don't resist God's grace, brothers and sisters. Don't desire what God has saved you from, from what he's delivered you from. And, and when all of this happens, God is trying to lead us into deeper communion with him, into a deeper reliance on him, into a deeper experience, resting in the knowledge just as he provided for his people, even in the midst of their grumbling. He has provided for us too. He's provided the true bread from heaven to sustain us and to strengthen us. Talk a little bit about the Eucharist and faithfulness. We see here in the story God's continued faithfulness to his people, even when they complain against him, even when they complain against those that he has sent to lead them and to guide them. Their faithlessness is our faithlessness. Right? These stories that we read in the Old Testament, these are pedagogical. They teach us something. St. Paul makes this point in, in his epistles, that they are examples for us. And just as God provided daily bread for their journey in the wilderness, he has provided the true and everlasting bread for us. When the people saw the manna on the ground, they didn't know what it was. And when Jesus comes on the scene, he was rejected by his own people. Many of them did not know who he was. A few did, but most didn't. In John 6, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. This verse is 32 to 35, and then in verse 51, Jesus says this, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. 
So like we said at the beginning of this sermon, brothers and sisters, this story is pointing us to another sacrament. Just as the crossing of the Red Sea is pointing us to the sacrament of salvation through the waters of baptism, something we see all throughout the Bible. This story is pointing us towards the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, Holy Communion, the Eucharist. Unlike the people of Israel who ate the manna, if we eat of the true heavenly bread, we will live forever. And this is why, brothers and sisters, the Eucharist isn't just a mere memorial. Why it isn't just a private me and God thing one can do at home. If Jesus, by this meant, say this prayer and you'll live forever, he would have said, say this prayer and you'll live forever. I don't know, some of you may have come up in this, you may have family members or know friends who, who, who have come up in this world, but I grew up in the world where every single Sunday or at every single meeting we ever had, somebody always had to give what was called an altar call. So you always had to say, close your head, uh, close your head, close your eyes and bow your heads. If you were to die tonight, would you go? You would go right to heaven. And there's nothing wrong with that. That can be helpful and useful in some cases. But when that becomes the paradigm for how we become Christians, when that becomes the paradigm for how we receive eternal life, it gets taken a little too far. Jesus didn't say, if you want to live forever, raise your hand and say a prayer when the preacher asks you. Jesus said, if you want to live forever, you must be baptized in water and spirit. And then he said, if you don't eat my flesh, and if you don't drink my blood, you have no life in you. And saying a prayer and raising your hand can be a way of entering in. Right? That's how I became a Christian. I became a Christian... My mom will tell you the story if she were here. I became a Christian when I was crying about something because I was a little kid. It wasn't last week. And, and she was talking to me about something and she sort of laid out the gospel story for me and she led me in the sinner's prayer. And that was my first experience of, of that as, as a child, right? She would probably point to that. I could probably point to that as when I became a Christian, when I decided that I wanted to follow Jesus. And that's a beautiful thing and that was a beautiful moment but that never should become the main paradigm by how which Christians are made. He said, eat and drink. Because brothers and sisters, Christ, and we don't know how to explain this, right? But we know Christ is truly present in the Eucharist. A commentator named White notes this. This presence is real. The Eucharist is the body and blood of Christ. However, this real presence, which exists independently of the subjective faith of Christians, is only rightly understood and experienced in and through supernatural faith, hope, and love. And this is why, brothers and sisters, for most of Christian history, that Holy Communion, the Lord's Supper, the Eucharist, is the summit of worship, the pinnacle of worship, the high point of worship, the purpose of our gathering in worship corporately. As the people of Israel, the covenant people of God, were daily fed by heavenly bread. And we pray this every Sunday. Give us this day our what? Our daily bread. And if we are asking for our daily bread when we come on Sundays, maybe we should be getting that daily bread when we gather on Sundays. We are fed, brothers and sisters, by the bread of life, our Lord Jesus Christ. And this should be central to all of our acts of worship. And this isn't anything new. We've talked about this over and, and over again. But one point I'd like to make too. Like, like the manna rotted after being stored. Right? The Eucharist, the Lord's table, 
it's not for those who, who do not believe. It's not for those who have not examined themselves. It's not for those who disobey the commandments of our Lord. The St. Paul says, those who eat unworthily eat and drink judgment upon themselves. Not necessarily judgment from the church, but from the Lord. So this is why it's, it's holy. It's sacred. But here's the beautiful thing, brothers and sisters. When we all come to the table, we are all unworthy. Every single one of us. I am unworthy standing here and preaching through this text and leading us through the services. I am unworthy. Every single one of us. We have all been corrupted by sin. But the beautiful thing about, about that is that Christ, the true Moses, has freed us from sin. He has freed us from servitude to sin. He has freed us from the bondage of death. So that when we die, that every single funeral that I, that, that I stand at the head of the casket of those who I know are in Christ, that death does not have the final say over them. And Christ in his infinite love and his infinite goodness through his blood has made us worthy to approach in faith, in fear, and in love to eat and to drink and to live forever. And so to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, be all glory together with his Father who is from everlasting and is all holy good and life-creating spirit. Amen.